Digital Drift, episode 15, recorded Friday 16th of May, 2014, The Spectacular Spider-Man. Spider-Man season, we're turning our attention to my favorite representation of the wall crawler in any media, stage, big screen, small screen, video game, or comic book page. And when I say stage, I'm talking about that one Spider-Man musical. The Spectacular Spider-Man was a short-lived, prematurely cancelled, two-season, 26-episode production that ran between March 2008 until November 2009, which was after Spider-Man 3 and before The Amazing Spider-Man. On TV, it succeeded the CG new animated series and preceded the currently ongoing Ultimate Spider-Man. The series was developed by Greg Wiseman, who had previously delivered to the world the fan-favourite, two-season-long and prematurely cancelled Gargoyles. He went on to create the fan-favourite, two-season-long and prematurely cancelled Young Justice. He's the current executive producer on Star Wars Rebels, so I will enjoy both seasons while they last. The series takes its time, introducing the characters that will eventually go on to become Spidey's colourful rogues gallery, often long before they undergo any kind of transformation. The flow of these events thus feels more organic. Likewise, there is an immense supporting cast of colourful, exaggerated characters. Like Avatar The Legend of Aang, it seems initially very kiddie-oriented, but sticking with it will reveal more depth, substance and subtlety than most depictions of Spidey have managed. However, thanks to that child-friendly presentation and refusal to ever stay in grim-dark territory, this manages to walk the tightrope and stay true to its young audience, whilst also delivering to people of all ages who appreciate a good story. Likeable characters, yes, even the villains, and repeatedly snicker-worthy humour. Because of all this engagement, when the drama comes, you actually care what's going on, who it's happening to, and how they will respond. People make good and bad choices, and it's not always about Peter. You'll find yourself rooting for Gwen, Harry, Mary Jane, Aunt May, Felicia, and even Flash. There are even times when you'll wish things just went right for Dr. Octopus. Sharon and I marathoned the Blu-ray box set over the past week or so. It's been a wonderful experience. I'd remembered how great the first series was, but I'd forgotten how deceptively complex season two became. As a grand opera of New York's crime bosses vying for the top spot with Spidey in the middle. It's obviously inspired by The Dark Knight, which came out the year of the first season, but manages once again to deliver that story to little kids and grown-ups alike on even ground. The supervising director was Victor Cook, and the character redesigns were done by Sean Cheeks Galloway. 
whom some of you may have seen the work of on Hellboy Animated. A third season of Spectacular Spider-Man was dependent on TV ratings and DVD sales, something actively hindered by the decision to launch eight separate discs of three to four episodes each, a move ideally suited to kids nagging their mothers for budget-priced impulse buys at the grocery store, but death in terms of attracting adults and serious animation fans. A complete season one was launched after the first four discs, but already they were on shaky ground, and this multi-region Blu-ray set, released some four and a half years after the show's death, stands as the best possible way to acquire and view the series. Of course, it's only available in the USA, and they never released the four-season two discs in the UK because f*** those limeys. Before the series premiere, Matt Cernaker of Comics Online interviewed some of the spectacular Spider-Man development team at WonderCon 2008 after a preview screening and stated, This new Spider-Man series truly is spectacular. Surpasses all of the previous incarnations with ease. If you're a Spidey fan, you will not want to miss this. Early in the series' run, Alan Kistler of Comic Mix called the series one of the best superhero adaptations I've ever seen. And trust me, I've watched more than anyone would probably consider reasonable. It's fun, it's smart, it's mature, it's witty, and every episode leaves me wanting more. In an article entitled Eight Reasons to Watch Spectacular Spider-Man, Reggie White Jr. from Spider-Fan wrote, If you aren't watching the Spectacular Spider-Man on CW Kids WB, you're missing out on what is quickly becoming one of the greatest Spidey cartoons of all time. Stu from Marvel Animation Age writes in his review of the series, At time of writing, The Spectacular Spider-Man stands as Marvel's finest animated effort, and surpasses most of DC's finest efforts. The only shows in Spectacular's League, really, is Batman the Animated Series itself. With more episodes, it may just surpass it. IGN stated that Greg Wiseman has only cemented his reputation for quality television animation with his work on Spider-Man. IGN also named The Spectacular Spider-Man the 30th in the top 100 best animated TV shows in January 2009, outranking both the 1990s Spider-Man cartoon and Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. The Spectacular Spider-Man was awarded Best Animated Series in both 2008 and 2009, with the series version of the main character being named TV's Best Hero in 2008. Subsequently, it was placed second in the top 25 comic book TV shows in 2011. Recently, The Spectacular Spider-Man was listed as number 22 on the greatest 25 cartoons for adults on IGN. Outside of comic resources, Variety highlighted that although seemingly conceived largely to push a new line of Hasbro toys, the soon-to-fade-out Kids WB on The CW delivers a credible new version of Spider-Man, emphasising his relatable headaches as a 16-year-old superhero. TV Guide listed the series as one of the 60 greatest animated series of all time. Once Disney acquired Marvel, Spectacular was done, and the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon project was started. That show turned out to be juvenile, shallow, tedious, annoying, and forgettable. Wiseman would later write that Sony had, in 2009, relinquished to Marvel its license to produce television works that used Spider-Man and associated characters, but had retained ownership of the spectacular Spider-Man series and all of the production elements created specifically for it, such as character designs and storylines. Therefore, neither Sony nor Marvel could continue production of the series as each lacked some of the essential rights to do so. This is rather like GoldenEye 64. So well done, Sony. That's some truly world-class salting of the creative earth. May your amazing film series continue to not make you your billion dollars per movie. 
although I am at least thankful for the release of Amazing 2 because it prompted the release of this wonderful Blu-ray set. One of the key reasons this succeeds for me where the movies have all in some way fallen short is that due to the nature of his soap opera style comic origins, Peter's manic life with its many different faces and trials actually works better in a short burst weekly format than in epic two hour updates every two years. And this show has its roots in the original Steve Ditko, Stan Lee, 60s Spider-Man stories where all of these characters first turned up, but also is heavily influenced by Brian Michael Bendis's 2000s Ultimate Spider-Man comic line. Spider-Man himself may come alive when rendered into stunning live-action stunts in the real-life New York streets, but Peter comes alive when set against a backdrop that gives the creators more time for characterization, interior monologue, recurring characters, troubled relationships, slow burn developments, and more prolonged organic conflicts. It also certainly doesn't hurt that the show whips along in a funny and lovable way, rather than brooding about darkness and no parents. It is, in many ways, the flip side of Batman the Animated Series, no less deep without the shadows. For fans of the 90s show Spider-Man, I will not say this is better. But if you love that series, you owe it to yourself to compare the two. Okay, so from this point onwards, we're going to be going into spoiler territory. Basically, that, that first run there was just a sizzle to say, everyone, go out, get hold of this, watch it yourself. It is available in both seasons on iTunes. That's probably the easiest way to see it, actually. It's very cheap to get hold of. I think it was like three ninety nine per season. Uh, I believe you can also get uh, it uh, streaming on Amazon. I don't think it's available on Netflix, even in America. Uh, you can get uh, four... Season 1 DVDs in the UK, you can get 4 Season 1 and 4 Season 2 DVDs in the USA. You can get a Season 1 box set in the USA, but not the UK. Or Actually, no, I think there's now one in the UK as well, which just combines those four. And you get a complete two-season Blu-ray, which, as we say, is probably the optimum way of watching this. So everything past this point will be spoiling everything in the series, but we'll do it in order. So we'll start off with the earlier episodes, and then we'll work our way up to the last ones. So, if you're going to carry on, we'll start with Peter Parker and Spider-Man. You fought Spidey. Any insight on his identity? Nah, but I hope the Parker kid is Spider-Man. Believe me, every guy in the joint would know what to do with that info. Look, I've known puny Parker since nursery school. Man, the dweeb spent sophomore year stuffed in his locker. Several students saw him in a Spider-Man costume. At the Halloween carnival?! And he looked like a geek in footy pajamas. Anyone can suit up and pretend to be Spidey. Any chance Pete and Spidey are one and the same? No. Peter Parker. Spider-Man? Although, it would explain a few things. Like when... You don't mean it. And what about... Oh, that's pretty far-fetched. And yet, no, no comment. comment. Is your nephew Spider-Man? Am I being punked? So, they tell me you and Pete go way back. Yeah, we're like brothers. Should have seen it sooner. Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Peter Parker the Spider-Man, why is he different in this? 
to say his cinematic incarnations or uh, even say the previous uh, animated versions what singles him out for me is that he's a bit of a dick in this but it's okay for some reason it works and I think that has to do with uh, what you were saying about the idea of the the regular short bursts um, that build up over a long time um, because what that enables uh, creators to do and to put across um, is this idea of an individual being pretty multi-layered and that a hero doesn't have to be a hero all the time which when you're looking at a superhero movie they are often put forward that way so the the more traditional hero types so your captain america your thor your superman um they work quite well in a big movie because they're dealing with big things and um yes they may have character development that goes up and down over the course of the movie but ultimately the arc is he starts off you know he's going to be a hero things happen that throw obstacles in his way and at the end he's a hero again Whereas uh, the way you see Peter grow and develop over the course of the, the, the two series, he's constantly up and down. There are days when you want to slap him and there are days when you're, you get to see the power of his good intentions and how things happen to make that go wrong and how he understands that that's not, he's, he's not constantly trying to make excuses, but likewise he can't always overcome the things that get in his way. It almost seems more uh, like, and this is something I kind of leveled at uh, amazing, but uh, it gets handled better here because you get to flesh out everyone else who Peter's uh, interacting with and it feels like a more more populated world. Peter's trying to fold being Spider-Man in with everything else he does as opposed to trying to fold everything he does in with being Spider-Man. Yes. Yeah, in fact, I mean, you could compare his attempts to um, the sort of stereotypical idea of the working mother attempting to have it all, career, well, I say attempting to have it all, attempting to do it all without it all falling apart. So, you know, balancing job and family and children and transport and money and this and that. And, and there being so many plates that have to be kept spinning constantly um, that... You just, you're watching with this nail biting sensation that sooner or later something is going to drop. Mm. And that's possibly one of the reasons why I actually find Peter really, really relatable. And I think this probably comes the closest to when we did the um, Amazing Spider-Man 2 podcast. I mentioned um, an idea of an adult Peter who uh, goes back to high school as a teacher. And one of the things that I really like about that, that setup of him is that he's a genius and in the, in the scientific sense. And he puts all that aside to teach high school because he thinks that's more important. And also because that's easier to balance with being Spider-Man. Yeah. And although this is still very much the, the high school kid, version um i think he's trying to achieve a, a similar level of balance i mean you you do see the episodes where he tries to mingle date nights out and 
proms and things like that, but they are few and far between. He pretty much gives up on the idea of having a normal teenage life fairly quickly. But that's not to say he doesn't uh, at least attempt the whole way through to keep juggling it, because a lot of people seem to have a lot invested in him. There's a lot of expectation in Peter in these. But that's the thing. It's about what he's living up to in terms of his relationships with other people. It's how he's important to Aunt May and how he's important to Liz or MJ or uh, Gwen or any of the other people that he feels he has an obligation to or a responsibility to. And he he seems to do it gladly. But what what I mean when I say he gives up on the idea of a normal teenage life is he's not constantly ticked off because he doesn't get to go out partying. Yeah, he's, that's you know, true. He's, yeah. he's not pursuing those avenues of uh, entertainment for himself. Well, he finds being Spider-Man incredibly fun, which is important. They, they even honed in on that in uh, Amazing 2. The uh, trailers start off with him saying, do you know what I love about being Spider-Man? Everything. And that's pretty much how this starts out. Yeah. He's, every time he uh, uh, races around the city, there's this kind of... It's like, yeah, loving it, having fun as Spider-Man. So it's, you know, no other teenagers get to do this. This is what I enjoy doing. So it's, it's a, a trade-off. Uh, he's not always going on about his constant burden that he must do this and he feels so guilty. It comes up every now and then, but you know what else doesn't come up? I must never go out with anyone. They'll be in danger. Not once does he say, I can't go out with this girl because she'll uh, be in danger. But the way it was developing by the later seasons, were they to carry on, he might have actually started to go down that route. But at this point, he's a kid and he's, he's, he's not thinking, I, you know, if anyone gets involved with me, then they could be killed. And that dominates the other five movies. Do you ever shut up? Sorry, no. My fans expect a certain amount of quippage in every battle. So, to the people who could be killed, uh, Aunt May, I'm actually surprised that she wasn't used more now in retrospect. She's kind of an afterthought, especially in season two. She's there, but they don't really make her into that much of an in, uh, incredibly important character. And I'm saying that simply because having just read through the first volume of Ultimate Spider-Man, she is used as much more of a character in that. She gets very much involved uh, with uh, what Peter's doing. He, when he reveals that he's Spider-Man to her, uh, it freaks her out. I'm not going to spoil exactly what happens, but they, they go they go deeper on Aunt May in that, and she becomes more of a character. So in this, she's there, and she's a really great, straightforward link to Peter's heart. Uh, in the first episode, you know, he cares greatly about her, and so you care about him. Oh, perfect end to a perfect day. Aunt May, you're awake. Sit down, Peter. We need to talk. I know you're a good boy. I'm growing up to be a fine young man. The man of the house now. But you're still my responsibility. I can't have you out till midnight. You're to be home by 10 o'clock. That's my bedtime. But Aunt May... If you're late, you call before 10. If you do call, it'd better be to say you're on your way home. That's the law in this house, Peter. Do we understand each other? <laughs> sure, and me. That's fair. Lovely. Now, how about a slice of banana cream pie? Okay. Nothing went as planned today. Understatement of the year. But I'm still Spider-Man and still undefeated. 
and I still have this amazing person watching out for me. Tell me there's something better. Go ahead. Try. I do like her performance, the, the actress playing her. Um, her her vocal work is very convincing and um, she's very warm. You kind of love her despite any um, resistance you may have to that. Um, but, but yeah, she doesn't really do a great deal. Again, we don't know that that's not because it petered out, excuse the pun, after the first couple of seasons and that there might not have been more development for her later on. Um, I think her main purpose in these earlier shows is to provide Peter with a, a home base. Yeah. This idea that... Um, ground rules. Yes, absolutely. But th- this idea that a uh, to be stable and to be... Um, to have a chance of developing positively, a child needs this kind of secure home and this this place where they have roots and uh, and people who will give them unconditional care and that's what aunt may is there for ultimately she is she is peter's unconditional care the way he's animated as well he's always got a label sticking out the back of his t-shirt it's he's got a short sleeve tee over a long sleeve tee and pretty much everyone stays in the same clothes except for mj goes through quite a wardrobe Gwen gives herself a makeover by the end of season two, takes off her glasses. But uh, Gwen in this is actually very different to how she is in Amazing. She's uh, she's clearly smart, but she's also shy and uh, not very sure of herself and clearly likes Peter, but has no way of really expressing that. She isn't bold like Gwen in uh, the comics or uh, in either Ultimate or Regular Continuity or uh, Emma Stone's Gwen. Actually, you talk about the uh, consistency of outfits. Not only does Gwen wear pretty much the same clothes every single episode of at least season one and the first half of season two. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the photographs of her around the house when it's in her home, she's wearing the same hoodie in all the photographs. Yeah. So either all those photographs were taken on the same day or she genuinely wears that hoodie all the time. So what did you think of this Gwen? Obviously because you got a very memorable example of her in uh, Emma Stone's Gwen. Yeah, I think it's it's tricky because for me, as I said with, with Emma Stone's interpretation, I connected with her version of the character very strongly. I connect with this version of Gwen very strongly as well, but in a slightly different way. Emma Stone's Gwen is how I like to see myself in high school this Gwen is probably probably more like how other people saw me in high school I mean she's a little bit too um, a lot of the conversations that she has particularly early on in the series are kind of all focused on this idea that she's sighing over Peter and Peter will never notice and all this kind of stuff which that (laughs) That wasn't really me. Um, at least if that was going on in my head, I certainly didn't talk to anybody about it. Um, but this sort of quiet, unassuming, bespectacled blonde girl who sits in the corner and gets all of her science tests right, but doesn't really have the wherewithal to kind of go out and do anything with that. Um, that's something that I can 
yeah, empathise with quite strongly. <laughs> so I, I, I did like the way that she, she does come more into her own as things progress. Um, although the, what you said about the, the makeover that she gets, I was like, stop with the whole take glasses off girls suddenly attractive thing. She was attractive before. Stop picking on the glasses. You are also incredibly attractive with glasses, but when you take them off and put contacts in, your eyes pop. Not literally. Not literally. That would be hideous. <laughs> but uh, well, thank you. It's very sweet of you to say, darling. Yeah, but then again, if you put glasses on a lot of women that I do find attractive, I probably go wow even more so because uh, glasses um, and Pol Pot will agree with me make a person look smart. It depends what you do with them. If you look at people over the top of them, they can be incredibly effective. To give them the look, which is something yes, that repeatedly look. gets oh, mentioned. That Gwen Stacey I did love for. that. The fact that, see, now that was another thing that I really liked. This idea that even though she is this kind of slightly quiet, unassuming person, bookish. certainly the, um, yeah, bookish, perfect word. Um, that's certainly how the, the jock set see her. Um, they don't tend to really bully her in the same way as some of the other slightly nerdy kids get bullied a little bit. Not much, but a little bit. Peter well, there's a point where she jumps in front of Peter when he's getting water ballooned mm-hmm. and flings both arms out in a kind of, nah, you have to go through me. And they actually just leave off. Back off, yeah, exactly. Um, and, Dude, her uh, dad's and, yeah, a police the, officer. And you do not mess with oh, her. Oh, there is that, yeah. But no, the, the look is a, a good example of that, that underneath all of that quietness and, and tendency to hide is this core of will not take shit. Mary Jane, in contrast, seems like this high school shaman. She sort of moves. She she's spoken of in uh, in hushed whispers for the uh, uh, the first say six episodes. Uh, she doesn't get mentioned actually. She's not mentioned until episode four, and it goes four, five, and six. Aunt May keeps saying, "Oh, Anna Watson's niece is coming over. She has a great personality." And Peter's constantly going, ugh. Uh, and then when she turns up and she's this smoking redhead and she finally delivers that line, face it, Tiger, you just hit the jackpot. Now, you said no girl would say that. And you're probably right. No, no, no. I didn't say no girl would say that. Oh, right, okay. No self-respecting girl would refer to herself as a jackpot. Uh, you would question any girl who referred to herself as the jackpot. Having said that... It's almost like they were so desperate to have her say those classic lines from the original comic, which is what, because uh, Peter meets her in exactly the same circumstances. She, she's, he's being set up for a, with a blind date. Um, they then go about spending the next two series making her this incredibly self-assured girl in polar opposition to the MJ in uh, Raimi films, but that doesn't necessarily deepen her. I, I, I think that MJ suffered from the fact that they never really got to go in to who she really was in this series. I do think they were starting to, though. Mm, yes. There were definite layers coming in onto her character towards the end of season two. and I think Well, it's, it's when she lets somebody else in. She's not actually all that interested in Peter uh, um, romantically. She does start to date uh, Liz Allen's brother, but then when he lets both Liz and, her, and Mary Jane down, both girls get hurt. 
emotionally, and that is unusual for a, an animated show and the kids. Yeah, and I mean, she she does when she once she's turned up on the scene, she does kind of go out with quite a lot of the the boys around Peter as well. I think she she flirts with Flash and she has a date with Eddie and and various other things. But, but she's so unnaturally self assured. Yeah, and one of the things that I would actually say about this version of MJ is that that side of her character um, is is quite similar to Emma Stone's Gwen. I was going to say but, she's closer to that version of Gwen. Yeah. Exactly. She she seems to. In fact. There was, she seems there was a lot a scene, older than everyone around her. Yeah, there was a scene that summed it up for me where um, Gwen wanted, or Peter wanted to talk to Gwen, I think, and um, MJ was with her and a couple of other girls. And MJ basically takes the other girls and says, right, they need some talking time. We're going to go now. Mm. And I was like, high school girls mostly do the exact opposite of that. If you try to talk to them, their friends will close in and prevent you from having a conversation with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, for MJ to be... Shock tactics. Yeah, for MJ to be self-aware enough and, more importantly, aware of other people enough to actually properly stand out amongst the average high school teenager, she really does seem more like a, a college graduate yeah. than they do. Other high schoolers that they spend time with a lot on screen. Flash Thompson is a major supporting character in this. Uh, completely unlike uh, either of the Flashes that we've seen on the big screen. Far closer to uh, who, who he was in the original comics, but also pathetic. He is a he's a doofus. He's clearly delineated as somebody who's not very bright. He's a bully and he's obnoxious and he's got this loud braying laugh, but for some reason that's vaguely endearing. He could have just turned out uh, to be a really nasty piece of work. I mean, who likes bullies? But it's almost because he's so hapless and they find uh, clever ways to put him out of his depth. Like he starts trying uh, to uh, to date this girl called Shoshana, who's uh, into acting and doesn't have the least bit of interest in sports. And his only weapon is to say, hey, Shoshana, look how far I can throw things. And she's like, eh, still no. And... He's crestfallen because he has no powers in this regard. So there are many, many times, especially in the second series, where he comes up as really selfish and self-centered. Uh, but at the same time, I kind of like Flash. Not for who he is, but for the fact that he actually does deep down have ethics. Tellingly, at one point, Peter turns up to one of Flash's parties. and Flash didn't invite him. But his mum did, because she's under the impression that Flash and Peter are still best friends, which they were in kindergarten. And this is exactly what we said about what we read into Amazing Spider-Man, when Peter says, Put him down! Eugene! And why the older Eugene might strike out against a boy who knows who he really is. Yeah, I think it, there's there's a lot of um, incidents that take place with Flash where it's made pretty clear that he his self image is much more fragile than he likes to let on, yeah. um, and that he he deep down feels like he has an immense amount to prove. Now, whether that is the idea that he genuinely knows that being a high school footballer is not the be all and end all and he's going to have to do something else with his life if you know he actually wants to get anywhere or whether there's something else behind that it's never quite made clear because he never has a particularly deep and intellectual discussion 
with anybody for that to start coming across. It's softened a little bit by the fact that there is much more mingling of the groups than you would normally get in yeah. the sort of stereotypical high school presentation. When it comes down to it, they are all friends. They will all stick up for each other. Um, it, you pointed out there's a point where they all end up smushed together inside a restaurant booth, and you said that it's a, there's a very clear delineation between not so much jocks and nerds as introverts and extroverts. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and you can see... It, it, Again, it's the animation style actually helps that come across quite well because everybody has these big, multicolored eyes. Everyone has big, expressive eyes in different colors, so it's not all just the same identical black dots. That's right, and the animators have got this gift for stylizing the shape of the eyes to communicate the emotions. So you, it's very, it's very expressive and obvious with eyes of the shapes that they've drawn to show that somebody is downcast, somebody is excited or trusting or happy or you know. So it, it all kind of creates these wonderful facial expressions, which when they're all together in a group, you get to see the distinctions between them and, and people's personalities really come through on their faces. Close friend of Flash's Liz Allen, who's I don't think she's ever mentioned in any of the films, is she? Uh, doesn't ring a bell with me. She's in the Ultimate Comics and actually turns out to be a mutant and possess fire powers, thus making her Firestar in an episode which also features Iceman. Uh, but uh, this version of Liz Allen, uh, kind of a prom queen, although unlike her blonde, waspish comic self in both regular 616 and Ultimate Universes, she is depicted here as Latino, as is her brother. She's also depicted as being rich, kind of spoiled, kind of used to getting her own way on everything, and starts off being very dismissive of Peter, and uh, very kind of, you know, oh, you don't want to hang around with guys like that, you get cooties, which is kind of a juvenile way of, uh, of, of seeing things, but they had to reduce it to the state where Peter is a social pariah. And then later on, she starts to realise, oh, hey, you know what, this guy is actually a, a nice guy, and a stand-up guy, and although he doesn't seem to have the hots for her in any particular way she throws herself at him and they end up going out for a protracted amount of time for season two which is particularly complicated because that's the exact same time that Gwen decides to uh, make a move on Peter the conflict arises from the fact that even though Peter doesn't particularly have the hots for Liz herself the status that going out with her brings him coupled with his uncomplicated feelings about her and the fact that he doesn't really have to do anything, he just has to let her like him, allows him to settle into this uneasy relationship of convenience while Gwen pines for him in a corner. Honestly, it's the kind of move that would make you hammer your head against your hands in a kind of, what are you doing, Peter, way, if it weren't so apparent that Peter and Gwen are going to end up together in some respect. Some people are just passing through, but others have a huge significance on your life. Gwen is always depicted as the latter. Except, of course, in Spider-Man 3. Which, interestingly, this does tie into, because Bryce Dallas Howard was geared into Spider-Man 3 just in case Kirsten Dunst went, I, I'm done with this, and walked, and wouldn't be in Spider-Man 4. They set up Gwen Stacy to possibly be the love interest in Spider-Man 4. That's all she was there for. In the end, she just added complications to an already very messy and unpleasant relationship. 
There's a Japanese manga trope, Harim, where it's effectively just one guy and a series of girls who are all sort of throwing themselves at him. The Persona games are certainly not about one guy, but if you like the Persona games, you'll find much to be interested in here. There's a lot of shipping going on. But Liz could have been, again, another awful, spiteful character who actually ends up being quite fragile. I think one of the things that I appreciate about the... The, uh, the relationshipy elements of this because uh, they they are emphasized and that there is a lot of that threaded throughout the whole but it's used more often than not as character development um, and it's not just about who fancies who and who's getting off with who and who's not getting off with who and it it's more to do with the situations in which these people will make themselves vulnerable and how will they make themselves vulnerable. It took me a while to warm up to Liz. She's quite a good example of this, actually. Eventually, I I did find myself kind of liking her despite myself. But then she still never quite tipped over for me into I really click with her because her tendency to still put up a front, I found quite off-putting but at the same time i don't know whether that would be whether that was allowed to happen because i got to see what was going on behind that does that make sense yeah because i knew that the the tough girl i'm not bothered things that she was saying were lies that actually made me a little bit frustrated at her because she couldn't admit those things to herself or her friends and she has friends who are quite supportive of her but that is quite an accurate depiction of a uh, a spoiled high school girl if if you have to portray a certain image yeah well i suppose i had very little patience with girls like that in school anyway so deep down what's appealing about liz for me is that at least unlike sally she wants to change she wants to change something about herself and she sees qualities in peter that she would like to share to make Liz look better, she's often paired up with Sally Avril, a truly obnoxious girl who takes everything we just described about Liz to far, far more exaggeratedly spiteful, annoying uh, heights. She's got a shrill voice from uh, Grey Delisle, who uh, plays Azula, and effectively forms the uh, chorus of the bullies and the and the school it crowd in decrying Peter Parker and everything he does. Mysterio is no illusionist playing parlor tricks. Mysterio is the master of the arcane arts. Well, it seems to me Mysterio is the master of talking about himself in the third person. There is an enormous amount of villains. Now, a lot of these we've already talked about uh, in, in the movie episodes and aren't wildly different uh, from them but are are really exceptionally faithful to uh, the way they've uh, been portrayed in the comics over the years. Just in these two series, you get Vulture, Electro, The Lizard, Sandman, Rhino, Tombstone, Doctor Octopus, Venom, Black Cat, Chameleon, Mysterio, Shocker, and the Enforcers, Ricochet and Ox, Craven, Calypso, The Tinkerer, Hammerhead, Silver Sable, Silvermane, Molten Man, Colonel Jupiter, and of course... The Mysterious Green Goblin. Let's see, you've got Adrian Toomes as the Vulture. Uh, there's Max Dillon as Electro, who actually seems like just a normal, regular engineer-type guy who uh, uh, starts feeling very sorry for himself and very aggressive after the Electric Eel incident. And uh, his story was handled in a more delicate way than the Amazing Spider-Man 2 version. There's the subtext there that if you 
kick a dog for long enough, eventually he's going to bite and bite hard. Uh, speaking of that, you've got Otto Octavius, who's a recurring villain throughout uh, these series, and starts off as this little doormat-type guy, this little kind of teddy bear of a, a man and a scientist, taking all kinds of shit from Norman Osborn, and just sort of absorbing it and gritting his teeth and going, oh, I'm trying to... When the octopus-fusing arms accident occurs, he roars, but I've been good which is a nice bit of psychological window to his framework there. The idea being he spent his entire life studying really hard to, to get to where he's going and towing the line, doing what he's supposed to, doing exactly what society is expected of him, taking all this shit with good graces, and then this happens to him, uh, which turns him into a, a very embittered, power-hungry man for whom his brilliance is still absolutely there, but he's not crazily trying to recreate an experiment and he's not uh, a good man underneath but you know robbing banks to recreate this thing like he was in spider-man 2 he's basically just decided oh f- this i seem to be the only person who's got his head screwed on in this city i can see a much larger plan here afoot and i'm gonna do what i have to to make that happen as such he's not necessarily likable as a, an octavius but he is very much the comic book otto you got Kirk Connors as the lizard. Now, how did this guy differ significantly from Reese Iffens? He is, well, first of all, Martha and Billy. Yeah. It's not so much that, that, that they are significantly the different thing about him, but because he has people to interact with, you get to see another level of how his hang-ups about his arm and his response to that how that impacts on his interaction with other people. I would actually say that character-wise, he's not that different to the way Reese Iffens portrayed him, um, except that Reese Iffens came across as a, a lot more... I, I had more of a feeling of suppressed danger in him, but then that's probably just because we're going from kids' cartoon to movie aimed at a wider range of people. There is more darkness in the Amazing Spider-Man films than there is here obviously but the presence of Martha and Billy mitigates a lot of the uh, raw anger that Kurt has a tendency to put forward he gets very frustrated by things he's um, constantly feeling that he's not complete that he's not sufficient as a man that he's falling short as a scientist. Um, again, what I said about the way the animators put things across in facial expression, he's got this marvellous tendency of when something happens that makes him feel bad, his eyes just go down a tiny bit at the corners. It's very subtle, but it makes it obvious when he's feeling diminished in some way. And it was it was most noticeable when they started bringing in the other doctors to work in his lab in season two. Yeah, that was something that came across quite well with him, I think. Billy provides a much needed link between children and the lizard because it allows a child to comprehend the lizard scenario and feel sorry for them by looking at him as a parent rather than just a crazy scientist. Billy himself is worried that his father's brain will become reptilian and then that he will eat his own child because he just doesn't care anymore, which is a really excellent, simple, symbolic way to uh, boil this story down to a level where people can care about it. And so as an adult, you're more likely to care because we can all relate to a child who's anxiety-ridden about their parents. 
There's also a really excellent scenario around this time where uh, in the lab that Dr. Connors is uh, working in, they develop a gene cleanser which will strip out any uh, genetic enhancements, including Peter's. So at one point he's in his bedroom truly debating dropping being Spider-Man on purpose. And to really let this one sink in, he doesn't just decide on the spot and get rid of it. He saves it for later, and this comes back in Season 1, and indeed Season 2. It's an ongoing scenario. Again, the benefits of being able to do this in a serialization. Gee, do you really think I could be a hero like you? Well, yeah. I, I mean, with great power comes great... Gullibility! Flint Marco, I do want to uh, briefly mention, the uh, Sam Man, uh, doesn't have that same sort of uh, heartbreaking uh, feel of um, Thomas Hayden Church's Sam Man. However, gets his redemption in Series 2. He actually, there's, that, there's that lovely bit in, on the beach where a little girl builds a sandcastle and it's fairly shrimpy and some boys bully her and then the Sam Man turns up and builds an enormous sand palace for her and then sort of you know, he towers over her and she sort of thanks. That's a lovely little moment. And then he saves a uh, oil tanker that uh, he was supposed to destroy, or at least saves the people in it. Outlining that uh, some of Spidey's best villains are the ones that aren't bad through and through. And in fact, just any villain uh, that isn't bad through and through, you're going to be far more compelled by, because there'll always be that chance for redemption. Absolutely. I mean, it it doesn't always have to come in a moment of great self-sacrifice, but something that indicates that they're not just thinking, look at how evil I am, is good. Anything which basically sees Spidey teaming up with one of his villains against a common threat, again, I'm far more likely to sit up and take notice. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there are so few other heroes in Spider-Man's yeah. world that he can team up with if you're not going to partner him with the Avengers who else is there for him to chum around yeah. with I mean, even the Fantastic Four or the Hulk yeah. yeah absolutely even Black Cat is to all intent and purposes a villain effectively she's just Catwoman in mm. exactly the same way exactly uh, so she's sorry antagonist rather than villain she's a minx Right. She's played by Trisha Helfer in a particularly comedic, slightly camp, seductive way. She's actually quite affectionate to uh, Spidey in comparison to, say, how um, quite aggressive uh, Catwoman can be with Batman at times. Mm. Although I think that... She's the- not the least bit threatened by him. No, it's it's pretty... Well, he's a teenager, of course she's not. Mm. Um, but uh, it, it's very apparent that they are very conscious of the comparison they don't shy away from poking fun of that occasionally there's one point where she's um, wearing a disguise and her id badge identifies her as selena but either way yeah she's uh, um, great fun to watch and they put just enough of her in there so it doesn't become lascivious uh, and you also get a little bit of acting and uh, a little bit of uh, drama with her in the uh, the tail end of season two she's trying to bust out her father from a maximum security prison. He is established as the cat burglar who murdered Uncle Ben. Now, for some reason, this didn't feel crowbarred in the same way that they did with uh, Flint Marco in Spider-Man 3. This felt like a more natural development. Her father decides he wants to stay in prison where he belongs. He's just as guilty as Peter. That's the last you see of Felicia, and as far as she's concerned, she and Spidey are done. But again, she shows her character. She could, she could have left Spidey to his death at one point after that, but she still goes back to save him, showing that uh, while he may be 
someone she despises, she's not going to let her ethical backbone wither in response. Yeah, I, I did. I, I mean, that episode is probably one of my favourites. I really like that one. And I think the, the interaction between her and her father and Peter is quite character revealing for all of them. They make the very wise decision of not starting with the origin of Spider-Man. In fact, it starts just a few weeks after he's become Spider-Man. Because the assumption is everyone's seen Spider-Man 1, right? And if you're a little kid who cares about Spider-Man and hasn't seen the first Spider-Man film, you probably don't need to see the specifics of the origin. But they revisit those moments for emotional growth at the end of season one and the end of season two. Now, one of the crowning achievements of this, although they were standing on the shoulders of something that happened in the Raimi films, how do you follow J.K. Simmons as the J. Jonah Jameson, the first J.J. that most people uh, in modern audiences uh, got to experience? If you watch the 90s Spider-Man, J.J. was obviously fairly prevalent there, but otherwise... Not really in the public conscious. And even then, in the 90s, he was more an irritation. And he certainly wasn't this explosion on screen that J.K. Simmons was. However, this guy played by Darren Norris is definitely channeling J.K. Simmons and is arguably better. The J.J. here on screen has got a moustache and little beard in the shape of an exclamation mark. And they turn him into this foghorn of angry energy the whole way through. Boss, I'd like a word. How about scram? Or two words. Scram, kid. Or 17. Get out of my office in 2.3 seconds or I'll staple you to a flagpole. How did you count so... Like, never mind. How do you work for a walking embolism like Jameson? Mr. Jameson's a decent man. Down deep. We talking Mariana's Trench Deep or Dante's Ninth Circle Deep? Garbage, garbage, literally garbage, garbage, wait, ho-ho! Uh, wouldn't you rather use one where Spider-Man's winning? Ha! Shows what you know. Nobody loves a winner. The people are our market, and the people want their heroes to fail. Makes them feel good about themselves. Ooh, piece of advice, kid. Perfume doesn't cut it. Tomato juice. Only thing after taking pictures at a dump. Just to stop asking. Parker! I pay you for front page material. This stuff belongs back with the funnies. So you don't want them? Not the point. What is the point? Here's the point. Quit harassing my secretary and get me a page one webhead blowout. Uh, trust me, Mr. Jameson. When Spidey goes into action, I'll be there. Listen, you insufferable whelp. When your publisher, you, Benny, I said corned beef, not pastrami. What, you want to give me gas? But beyond the usual, you know, crabbiness and extremely snappy back and forth, it's not even back and forth, just forth, just loads and loads of forth, he gets to do something which JK never really got to do. There's one point when he actually acts, and uh, it, it concerns his son when his son's space shuttle is coming into land, and it disappears off the grid, and they don't know if it may burn up on re-entry. Everyone's tense and standing around TVs, and uh, JJ's in his office, and uh, he mutters into his uh, telephone that uh, he needs to be told the truth straight away, and, and you know not to be uh, mollycoddled. And it's a really touching moment because, of course, he loves his son, and that you never get to see any of that in uh, the Spider-Man films. In fact, they made light of, of the uh, involvement in uh, his son's wedding, in that he doesn't really care all that much that uh, MJ dumped his son at the altar. But he'd rather the caviar wasn't opened. Mm. 
So yeah, it's it's a lovely moment. And then again, we get to see a lot of interaction with John later on when it turns out John contracted space germs or something, which turns him into this super powered superhero. Hold the front page, Robbie. I'll call you back. You can take the webhead down. Uh, excuse me? Look at you, boy. You've got the costume, the powers. All you need is a hokey name. Uh, Captain Mass. No, let's do hokey. Strong man. Uh, that's too generic. Uh, he's got Colonel... Colonel Jupiter. That's it. But, Pop, you, you hate superheroes. When did I say that? Every hour on the hour. Oh, I hate masked heroes. What are they hiding anyway? But you're an astronaut. The world already knows and loves you. You love him, right? Johnny boy, you can be the one to bring Spider-Man to justice. But what if Spidey's innocent? Don't confuse the issue! You get this sudden backswing on his pendulum of double standards. It all does relate to something which never really gets explored, which is that uh, J.J.'s wife was killed by a masked gunman. What J.J. should hate is masked gunmen. And when it comes down to it, the reason he's angry is that this man was never brought to justice. So because he he's behind people, a mask. He, so wants he wants everyone people identifiable. That he wants everyone to wear their identities on their sleeves. He doesn't care that this might endanger their families, ironically. So interestingly, JJ is married in both the Sam Raimi Spider Man films and in Spectacular Spider Man. So either this same comic storyline still stands and it's his first wife who was killed or that didn't actually happen, and there's no solid explanation as to why he hates and mistrusts people in masks. I like to think it's the first, because it gives him more depth. There's a wonderful moment at the end of uh, Ultimate Spider-Man. That's the comics, not the crappy animated series. Spin forwards by about 30 seconds, if you don't want to hear this one, where uh, JJ sees uh, Spider-Man saving people from uh, the tidal wave struck New York, and... He has an epiphany and realizes that he's been ripping into this guy his entire life. Of course he's not a menace. Of course he's saving people and helping people. It took a disaster for JJ to really realize how important he was. And he pulls up his typewriter and starts to write uh, a article that exonerates Spider-Man and apologizes. And that's really touching for Bendis to sort of pull that one out. And that was technically at the end of the run of the first volume. They were closing out the Ultimate Universe. That was more touching than what the actual ending was. I think for me, the interaction between um, JJ and John for that little couple of episodes was really quite impressive. The arc that John goes through, albeit that it's a short one, that he he sort of takes on this hero persona, and he's he's obviously quite a quite a placid character without being a pushover or anything like that. He's you know he's quite assertive, but he's not he, he doesn't steamroller people in the same way that his father does. Uh, but the the process of becoming this uh, what does he call himself? Colonel Jupiter. Colonel Jupiter. I think yeah. uh, Jameson calls him that. <laughs> yeah, but he, you, you can see him almost. The, the harder JJ pushes, you know, you're going to do this, and you're going to be a superhero without a mask, and you're going to help people in this way, and you're going to go after Spider-Man. And it's, you know, watching this man who was a, you know, a grown man who had his own way of looking at the world and and didn't let his father push him around, and gradually he almost seems to lose his grip on that and just start 
it, I think it's something to do with the increased mass increases his anger levels or aggression levels or something like that. Mm-hmm. That anger, he's he's not used to it. He's never had to deal with that anger before. So it picks up on the nearest demonstration of how anger should work, which is what his father's showing him. Almost like watching a very small child be shown how to be angry by an angry parent, except that this is a very small child who can punch walls over. Another major presence is L. Thompson Lincoln, also known as Tombstone, played for one brief moment... By Keith David. By Keith David, as the big man, uh, in a uh, telephone call. I think that was in the pilot, and uh, possibly uh, Greg Wiseman got his mate Keith to uh, voice him, uh, since he was uh, the voice of Goliath in Gargoyles. Establishing patterns of movement took all summer, but last night we had confirmation. The Spider-Man is real. Uh, but uh, after that, uh, he was very busy, and he's a very busy man, as our Keith David. But Kevin Michael Richardson took over with the best Keith David impersonation I have ever heard, to the point where I thought it was Keith David the whole way through. You know, applause from you makes me want to shower. Perhaps. But someone should point out I offered you a handsome salary to do just the sort of thing you did tonight. And instead, you've done the big man's business for free. That, my heroic friend, is what grown-ups call irony. Tombstone uh, surprised the hell out of me, because he's always been sort of a a C-list Spider-Man villain. Uh, But his presence, his assuredness, he's he's a mob boss type guy. It's not about the fact that he's physically intimidating. He keeps that in reserve for if he ever really needs it. It's about the fact that, much like the Kingpin, he wants to control events in New York. And he wants to control powerful figures within New York. He sees himself as sort of an overseer, keeping the balance. As far as he's concerned, you know, the, the crime and the uh, the shady dealings that are going on are just part of the balance of the chaos. And he has utter conviction in what he does. You never see him cackling about how evil he is. And yeah, he is he's massively intimidating. It's put across that uh, all of these um, colourful new characters and uh, villains that are, just seem to be popping up on the scene are there on his say-so to keep Spider-Man busy so that Spidey can't get to his real business. Then when Spidey gets that much closer, he tries to get Spider-Man on side and actually pay him off. I still think you'd make an invaluable employee, Spider-Man. But you'll forgive me if I'm suspicious of your sudden change of heart. You'll need to prove you're prepared to behave. Fight no crime for one week. You have dispensation if a supervillain endangers public safety. But no ordinary crime. Deal. I would actually love for the real Keith David to play the real Tombstone in a uh, future Spider-Man film. That would be awesome. That would be incredibly awesome. Speaking of voice actors, just to go down this list, some of these are going to be sort of uh, uh, reprises of what we've already mentioned. Uh, But for some of the cast, Josh Keaton uh, as Peter Parker, he also played Hal Jordan in Green Lantern, the animated series, which is also incredible. Lacey Chabert, who plays Gwen Stacy, uh, is the littler girl in Party of Five and also Simba's daughter in Lion King 2, colon Simba's Pride. Grey Delisle, who plays Sally Avril, uh, was uh, Azula in Avatar The Last Airbender and Catwoman in the Arkham games. James Arnold Taylor, who plays Harry Osborn, uh, also plays Obi-Wan in all of the uh, Clone Wars animated shows. And uh, 
Leonardo in uh, Teenage Mutant, the TMNT, the fourth uh, animated film. Clancy Brown plays George Stacy, uh, Gwen's father, and I just I love hearing Clancy Brown do any voice. Uh, but uh, he gives jo- he gives George a real again presence. And, uh, the guy seems extremely intelligent. I think I prefer this George Stacey even to, um, uh, Dennis Leary's uh, version of Gwen's father. Yeah. He, he gets more to do apart from anything else. Yeah. Uh, but there's one particular episode. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know the one I'm talking about. I know. It's just, Peter is a very clever kid, but to put him up against an incredibly clever professional man. A detective? Yeah. It works. Well, no, we can we, we can explain what happens. Uh, George Stacy clearly works out that Peter is Spider-Man, and he's lecturing Peter and uh, says that you know Spider-Man um, may not so much have something to hide as something to protect. And he glares at Peter in a kind of you know what I'm talking about. And Peter's like oh, okay, and then leaves the classroom. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's almost. It's almost the opposite of uh, leave Gwen out of this. It's mm. it's more a case of just make sure nothing happens to her. Yeah, but he he does it. It's not just the once either. He then makes um, a few more references throughout that episode mm. that basically make the point that he knows perfectly well that Peter is Spider Man. That's during the time when uh, it, when Peter's identity was about to be blown by Venom, who we'll talk about in a bit. Mm. Oh wait, no, Peter's identity has been blown by Venom, and it's it's that he gets investigated to see if he is Spider Man. It's uh, yeah. nerve wracking. Stacy, you have one second to explain why Spider Man isn't behind bars. Pleasure to see you. You too, Jonah. Maybe I can help. You heard about this Colonel Jupiter? You mean your son? Well, that's beside the point. What's the point? Here's the point. He single-handedly rescued a billion people from a fire covering 90 city blocks. Deputize him, and he'll have the webhead on a chain gang in 5.1 seconds. But which webhead, Jonah? This is a recent security tape. And this is older footage. Look, the fighting style, the suit, the build, they're all different. The camera adds 10 pounds. That bug's still terrorizing our city. This isn't the first time the Bugle got it wrong when the copycat dressed up as the web slinger. Now, you really want to embarrass yourself and your paper? Again? But yeah, again, I must reiterate how refreshing it is to watch a Spider-Man production where it's not, I must not let any woman into my life because I am accursed. Yeah, um, Steve Blum, the Steve Blum, the voice of Wolverine, Green Goblin, which is sly because one of the main things about Goblin is you don't know if it's Harry or if it's Norman or if it's someone else entirely. And he's played by Steve Blum, who plays none of the others. It's not a straightforward case of just going, well, that's obviously the guy playing Harry, just affecting a different voice. Uh, Phil Lamar, the voice of the other Green Lantern, uh, John Stewart, uh, plays Randy Robertson and also his own father, uh, Joe Robbie Robertson, who works at the Bugle with uh, JJ. John DiMaggio uh, plays both crime boss Hammerhead, self-explanatory, and uh, also Sandman. Again, I've always wanted to hear John DiMaggio voice the thing, and for some reason he's never done that. That must change. Hey... And now you're in color. See? It's not so bad. Not so bad! Stuff happens. And results the same. You got power no one else got. Not even Spider-Man. Now you can get revenge for all those times the webhead put you behind bars. Yeah. Now, wait. Revenge is for chumps. 
I don't care about Spider-Man. All I ever wanted was the big score. And now I got the power to get it. Now listen, you little nobody. Hey, Flint Marco was a nobody. But everyone will know the name Sandman. You're taking this calmly. I thought Big Man wanted a supervillain to fight Spider-Man. Big Man wanted the bug distracted. You think that boy won't make a good distraction? You haven't been paying attention. Kevin Michael Richardson, who voiced Kilowog in uh, Green Lantern, the animated series, playing L. Thompson Lincoln. D. Bradley Baker, playing Dr. Kurt Connors. That's Upper. Also Tarlock in The Legend of Korra. Adrian Toomes, the uh, withered old vulture, played by Robert Englund. An extremely excellent casting there. I can visualise him in that role. Yeah. Quentin Beck, who plays Mysterio, is played by Xander Berkeley, who, I don't know if you'll uh, remember, uh, had a, a brief role in... Terminator 2. Yeah. He was in... Ter- who, who was he in Terminator 2? He was... Oh, yeah, he um, was... Um, Todd. Shut up, you useless piece of shit. To the dog. She's not my mother, Todd. Todd. Trisha Helfer, six, of uh, Battlestar Galactica, playing Black Cat. Whom Lyra still refers to as Catwoman, so that shows you what a bang-up job Marvel did of hiding that obvious copycatting. Jim Cummings, who was has voiced many, many Disney characters, including Ray in, uh, <laughs> including Ray in The Princess and the Frog, opposite Keith David, uh, it plays Crusher Hogan, the uh, wrestler, as opposed to Bonesaw. And Stan the Man Lee plays himself briefly. Yay! Oh, Joan Jameson, Jonah's wife, is played by Jane Lynch. She of Glee. But Joan, honey bunch, darling, it's not too late to catch the mix. Why? Because it's Valentine's Day and you're giving me romantic or else. What's so romantic about a bunch of yodeling yodels? What's that, dear? Nothing, sweetums. <laughs> Ox, one of the enforcers, is played by Danny Trejo, and the cat burglar who killed Uncle Ben is played by James Remar. So yeah, this is like uh, Justice League Unlimited levels of star-studded. Maybe not specifically with uh, celebrities in the same way that JLU is, but in terms of voice actors, they're all there. I think a lot of them, um, they have that significant quality that you you know you recognize them from somewhere and it but it's not so overwhelming that all you can think about is who else they've played yeah. it's just that it lends them that slight familiarity that you kind of warm to is not quite the term especially considering the characters that some of them are playing but you kind of click with them very quickly yeah eddie brock they handle in just the right way insofar as he's he knows Peter. He's known Peter for a long, long time since they were younger. Uh, and he works with him and he trusts him and he likes him and Peter likes Eddie. So when the betrayals come, it's not just one. It's a series of letdowns. And Peter's just sort of slowly diminishing in the eyes of his friend until eventually Eddie hates him. And not without good reason. There's just so many times when it appears to Eddie that Peter has marginalized his friendship. Although I do and other like... Pe- not just himself, but other people. He can see that Peter is hurting other people and it starts to make... Eddie cares about other people too, although he eventually becomes an asshole. He's not just, please God, kill Spider-Man. No. 
Indeed. But I, I do like the fact that it's not just a straight Peter is behaving like an arse and Eddie is ticked off because of this. Um, there Especially is... not because, uh, like, all brought on by the black costume. Only some of it near the tail end is. Exactly. Um, but but there is a, uh, a fringe, if you like, to the... Uh, the nature of Peter's behaviour and how Eddie responds to that, and it overlaps with his own um, insecurities and, and um, the uh, the point where the lab has lost funding and so Eddie loses his job. Um, he all due to Peter and Spider Man's actions and Doc well, Connor's lizard like tendencies. Well, that's the thing. Eddie kind of goes down the line of this is all Peter's fault. It's not really, because funding in science settings is often very precarious anyway. Um, but but he's kind of, at that point, I think he's so angry about various things that his, his mind's starting to narrow down on uh, this sort of white-hot focus of, of anger and hate, which is what the black costume then latches onto. Yeah. Um, so there's, you can see the transition between... As you say, his his uh, respect for and um, friendship with Peter deteriorates quite slowly, and then it sort of pitches off the cliff when the um, when the black costume shows up. But it's not like with Harry, where Harry misinterprets one thing in um, sorry, this is in the Raimi films, and then spends two and a half films hating Spider Man. No, it's it's totally cumulative, and that's what makes it that much more believable and also it has the added bonus of making venom a teeny tiny bit sympathetic because you you may not like the way that eddie is reacting but you can understand how he got there and kind of see where he's coming from on a few of it yeah the black costume uh, scenario is handled exceptionally well now, some people have defended the um, uh, the, the disco dancing Peter in Spider-Man Three, and, and said that it's uh, it's what a nerdy kid would consider cool. That may be so, but there's something really to be said about the slow degrading of a young man's ethics. The way that this happens, it's sort of more of a creeping situation of things going wrong for Peter, and as opposed to him acting in a kind of, oh, God, the same thing always happens to me, he starts to react with anger. But it's a cold anger, and it's an understandable and a believable anger, and it's all, you can almost see it happening without the black costume, just from the cumulative effects of the world taking a giant dump on him. And he has to keep catching himself. Uh, at one point, he's out for a long, long time, and when he comes back, Aunt May's in hospital because she's had a heart attack and he wasn't there, and that knocks him for six. But at the same time, he's still consumed with uh, with anger. And again, not in a ridiculously dramatic way, just in a sort of very resentful way. I think for me, this uh, the way it's interpreted in this version kind of epitomizes what the black costume can represent. The idea that, um, you know, there are a lot of people who believe that anger can make you strong. Yes, it can. But you have to look at um, what that is then cutting you off from. What yeah. is it preventing you from responding to? And what do you do when you finally get to the point where you've become so smothered in it that the anger is all you have left? Now, at one point, uh, Peter goes to sleep exhausted and uh, the black costume puppeteers him out into the middle of New York while he's asleep and takes on the Sinister Six and defeats them. 
and it's spectacular to watch. It's it's effectively an absolutely silent Spider-Man. They're a little, they're all a little bit. They start out like sort of, we got a giant club of bullies, we're going to kick your ass. But then he starts wiping the floor with them and not speaking, and they're a bit freaked out. And it's it's uh, it's it's chilling. But this is exactly what the Sinister Six should be used for. They do it twice in this. The second time's a, diff- a slightly different roster, and Peter doesn't have the black costume. And again, that's uh, a fight he barely survives. This also highlights the spectacular action within this series. We've been talking about all the emotions and everything, but we never really talk about how just whip quick and how fluid and how impressive and how extremely well choreographed the fight scenes actually are. I mean, there's way better. Like, it's it's not the last airbender. It is not the legend of Ang by any means, but in terms of seeing Spidey on screen, uh, in, in engaging in comedy, I suppose comedy sci-fi action that it still at least, uh, obeys the laws of physics that it, even though it, while stretching them, you can tell what Spidey's limitations are. You can tell when he gets hurt and it's, this show is filled with, uh, clever uses of powers. By doing that, you kind of, um, push the parameters of what the the physics in that world is about but you do it gradually so instead of having to have this big setup of here are all the boundaries and now we will spend the entire series not stepping outside these boundaries at all Mm. or the flip side of that having no boundaries whatsoever and powers just do whatever you want them to do in that particular episode yeah both of which are frustrating in different ways now, the black costume storyline is the culmination of season one, and there's another episode afterwards uh, involving Venom, but this is really the peak of the series for me in terms of emotional impact. Uh, not that it, there was much of a decline, really, in season two. Season two is actually much more uh, complex in terms of plot, but in terms of emotional impact, this is what the end of Spider-Man 3 should have been. It's Peter struggling with a lot of repressed emotion regarding Uncle Ben's death, his guilt, his resentment, his anger, and all of this bad shit is is consuming him. And when he tries to pull off the black costume in the church tower, which again comes out of nowhere, and you're like, well, where's this church tower coming from? Again, we're going to have to forgive this one um, in in both this case and Spider-Man 3. The symbiote envelops him, and pulls him back into his his own mind, and he has to engage in a, uh, a battle on the um, on the mental plane rather than in the physical. So this one allows you to just do psychological deconstruction of Peter Parker going back to um, the uh, day when Ben died. And again, they're they're careful not to overblow the drama on that front, um, so, to, so as not to upset the kids. But they do not scrimp on what an impact this actually has on Peter. Uh, and this most reminds me of the end of uh, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, because the way that he is able to cast off the black costume, push out the despair, I suppose, the drive is to cut him off from everything that he cares about and to combat that. And it's not easy because it comes back for several rounds. He has to focus on the people that he saved, the good work that he has actually achieved, the difference that Spider-Man has made. And there's a wonderful symbolic moment where the, uh, the, uh, the symbiote's bearing down on him and everybody that he's ever affected, his circle of friends and family, stand in front of him and prevent the creature from getting to him because he is by this point wearing his loved ones as a shield. 
It's such a marvellously affecting scene, that one. Mm. And you, you really get the sense of, of Peter realising, although all of this stuff is coming from his own psyche, um, his own unconscious, you really get the feeling that this is stuff that he finds incredibly difficult to see on a day-to-day basis. And it's like this, he has this moment of clarity. We have taken root in Peter Parker, mind, body, and soul. My father's struggling. There's no place you can hide. Boy's got no need to hide. I'm stronger than you think. So yeah, after this uh, this wonderful um, conclusion. The symbiote trickles through the floor, gets to Eddie, and uh, Venom is born. And while in the wrong hands, and most times that I've seen him, this uh, character is overused or misused, or just plain crap, or a giant toothy, greebly thing that they don't really know what to do with, but for some reason has got star status. In this, they use him just enough, in just the right way, and make it very personal. For, for Venom, it's not about um, causing havoc. It's about getting to Peter on a very personal level, which sets him above and beyond most other Spider-Man villains, with the exception of, say, Doc Ock takes things very personally, and Green Goblin most definitely takes things personally. But the, the personal nature of the antagonism between um, Venom and Spider-Man is... The reason it works so well is because Peter and Eddie have this incredibly... Yeah far-reaching relationship oh you don't need to wear a mask with us peach we know all your secrets because of course we were you the symbiote i destroyed did you you really think think a little refrigeration refrigeration would do us us in you ensnared another human being someone better suited to our gifts Mission destroying you for rejecting us. From, From now on, we're poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. We're Venom. The other thing is, of course, that uh, Goblin and uh, Doc Ock want something more, and uh, Spider-Man and Peter are standing in their way. All Venom really wants to do, uh, all, all Brock wants to do, is punish Peter, which gives him a very singular focus so using him just the right amount is exactly what you need to do because if you overdo it and it's just the same thing over and over again i think the trick is remembering that what the symbiote is is amplification mm. so if you're going to use it you have to handle it delicately because it will make whatever you're trying to get across louder just by virtue of of you know how it operates so you have to kind of do that with subtlety to begin with otherwise once it's amplified it will end up too overwhelming so the fact that you've got this uh sort of resentment from eddie to peter he manages to keep that more or less on the down low but then the symbiote hates peter too for rejecting it so it really ramps that up there's a wonderful moment, uh, I think it's actually uh, in this one episode of Venom at the end of season one, where uh, Peter, after Venom's beaten him down, uh, 
in a kneeling position gives up and says, okay, you can, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take you back to the symbiote. And the symbiote gets off of Eddie and starts crawling towards him. And Eddie's crestfallen because suddenly he feels like sloppy seconds. And, uh, it, it becomes apparent that what this symbiote really wants is just to get to, to back onto Peter, to have that power, to have, to, it's hurt. It feels rejected. It feels scorned. Or it's heartbroken. Maybe it's obsessed with him. Those things are not always unrelated. There's a point where um, I think what what clinches it is um, uh, Eddie starts using the word I and not we anymore. And uh, when Peter points that out, the symbiote just falls off him when because it realises that it wants Peter back. I do love the way they're consistent with that, though. You can use the pronoun uh, Eddie's pronoun use helps you track where he is in his relationship with the symbiote. Yeah. Right. Season two. We don't need to talk uh, in, in extreme length about exactly what happens. What I will say that it's a very uh, carefully crafted uh, episodic crime drama. This one kind of ups the stakes and it becomes about who's going to be controlling New York City. And there's a lot of interested parties at this point. There's uh, You've got the, um, the big man, L. Thompson Lincoln, uh, Tombstone. Uh, you've got Silvermane, who gets uh, let out of jail for the first time in a long, long time. So this is sort of an old-school mafia crime boss who also happens to be like a cyborg or something. Uh, his daughter, Silver Sable, who's like this super athletic mercenary. Uh, you've got um, Hammerhead, who, again, likes to butt things with his heads. He's kind of the lieutenant of uh, L. Thompson Lincoln. He's kind of an old-school kind of gangster played by John DiMaggio. These kids today, what are you going to do? But uh, turns turncoat on his uh, uh, benefactor in a power play. Oh, and yeah, and Dr. Octopus is also vying for a uh, place in the top spot. And then Green Goblin comes in messing everything up as well. There's one point where uh, they're all trying to get hold of this MacGuffin-type thing that's just been sold at auction for one jillion dollars and it turns into a fight at the docks and it's just going back and forth and back and forth and they're all just smashing each other around to get hold of this thing and there's another incredibly elegant fight at the opera which i mean there's one way you can make your fight scenes incredibly classy and that's to intercut them with uh, an opera that's going on without uh, any sound effects and with just an opera happening and they did it in quantum of solace and it works extremely well here Almost every episode in this second season is framed with a, uh, a device that flows through the entire episode. There's one where uh, they're asking everybody who, uh, if Peter Parker is Spider-Man. There's one where all the kids at school are trying out for uh, a part in the play The Midsummer Night's Dream. There's another where they're all uh, getting ready for Midsummer Night's Dream, and there's a parallel between all of the goblin-related stuff and the character of Puck, who Harry is supposed to be playing. Uh, there's the one where um, uh, Flash is having a party and everyone is sort of giving testimonials to the camera and you get to find out more about the kids at Peter's school and more about Flash as a result. It, it's only just struck me when you've listed them all like that. They're all performances. Yeah. In some way. Even the uh, the interrogations over whether Peter is Spider-Man, the fact that some of them are telling the truth and some of them are lying and some of them are exaggerating different things in order to protect Peter and uh, some people are coming up with other explanations in order to um, incriminate him but th there's a degree of performance in each and every one of those devices that they use which then kind of 
circles around this idea that uh, is is Peter really Spider-Man? Is Spider-Man him? Or is Spider-Man simply a character that he plays in order to be able to do his job of protecting the city? Yeah. And the whole thing uh, culminates in uh, a reprise of the Green Goblin story. Now, this one we haven't really mentioned is a major mid-level component of season one. And uh, the the goblins terrorizing the town. There's it's again it's very much inspired by uh, Joker, who was uh, um, taking the big screen by storm in that particular summer. So it was kind of in the round up to that. And he's even more Jokerish in the uh, uh, second season. Mark Hamill based his Joker performance on um, uh, the Chief Blue Meanie. This one, Steve Blum appears to be uh, basing on Jeremy from Yellow Submarine. Just next time you're watching Spectacular Spider-Man, just listen to the, you know, the sound of Steve's voice and see, see if I'm right and he's actually playing the boob. <laughs> Nicely played. But wheels within wheels are already in motion. And I'll be back to see you crushed beneath them. Most of you always talk in rhyme. <laughs> if I spoke prose, you'd all find out I don't know what I talk about. Ad hoc, ad lock, and quid pro quo. So little time, so much to know. Okay, what's going on? The goblin's your savior. You owe him a favor. Spidey's trapped in the prison. Put him out of commission. The web creeps here? Why would I do your dirty work, Goblin? I'm already in prison. What else can you do to me? Oh, just to be perverse, I'll activate your curse. To prevent it getting worse, put the webhead in a hearse. Particularly the episode when he does everything in rhyming couplets. Yes, he uses uh, certain little idioms and phrases which are quite British, which again, uh, uh, harken back to the way Mark Hamill plays Joker. But the Goblin himself is terrifying in a different way to the uh, sexual violence threatening Willem Dafoe goblin. In the f- He's much scarier to me than that Power Ranger goblin. Yeah, but there's a reason for that. Basically, that goblin was not scary at all, mm. and so they had to make him scary by making him incredibly specifically threatening. Yeah. Whereas... Popping up in, in, in lots of different uh, places at the, exactly the wrong time and uh, seems to really have it in for Spider-Man. But he also seems extremely clever and calculating, mm. which is just uh, the right way to do Goblin. And there are elements to him that... Um, I mean, for me, when you get the, the big reveal at the end of Season 2, the most scary thing about that whole situation... Um, and it's such a tiny thing in, in the grand scheme of things, considering all the other stuff that he's done. But it's the fact that he it, he basically, I, I don't think he broke Harry's leg, but he damages Harry's leg, his own child, in order to be able to pass him off as the goblin. Yeah. For folks who, for some reason, haven't seen it but are still listening to this, uh, the mystery is on in the first series. Is it... Norman, is it Harry? This plays up heavily with the drama of uh, Harry Osborne's arc through it. There's a lot about Harry feeling uh, like he's a disappointment to his father and that his father, in fact, favours Peter. And uh, so he starts using globulin green, which is a metaphor for steroids. And uh, uh, he succeeds extremely well in the football team. 
and it, it would appear that everything is all set in place for him to be the Goblin. Now, considering this came out just after Spider-Man 3, I think a lot of people were sort of geared up for, well, we'll just go straight past uh, Norman and go straight to uh, Harry. And Norman's very dismissive, very cold, very quiet, and you never get to see him like putting on the Goblin mask and going through Goblin-related stuff. So it's always kind of up in the air as to who it could possibly be. As it transpires at the end of the second season, Norman actually framed his son when he, he came home in goblin gear, found his son, passed out on the floor, dressed him up as the goblin, broke his leg, broke his leg or at least twist his leg mm. to damage it uh, because Spidey saw goblin limping away. Uh, and then when Spidey turns up, we get, you know, this is all flashback to a scene that we saw unfold in season one. And during that whole, this whole finale, you've uh, been sort of, well, hang on a second, it can't be Norman because here's the goblin and there's Norman. And that was in season one as well. And it turns out that the Norman we were all seeing was the chameleon who was introduced uh, earlier in the, in late in season one, which is kind of a, a, a cruel trick, but it works within the uh, parameters of the Spider-Man universe. It also works in the parameters of Norman Osborn. That's the kind yeah. of thing he'd do. Yeah. Although I, I thought that it was that he'd set up um, somebody to dress up as the goblin and just fly around a bit. Ah, but see, uh, when Spidey notices this new goblin, uh, this goblin flying around, he's like, no, that's the real deal. And I've seen him up against uh, Norman here. I've seen the way he jumps and flies. Um, I, I expected to the point where when I watched it this recent time, I thought for some reason it was, uh, the, uh, it was Norman's wife. Who, if she was going to be given a voice in the third series, was going to be Marina Sirtis. In the end, uh, after a particularly spectacular fight, uh, Norman goes headfirst into a giant, like, water tower filled with the goblin pumpkin bombs, which all explode with the same scream every single time he throws them, which is very uh, uh, iconic. And he ostensibly dies, even though, as it turns out later, he's still alive and he's dyed his hair and he's going off under an assumed name, possibly to uh, wreak more goblin havoc elsewhere. But Harry is left hating Spider-Man for allowing his father to die, which was kind of an annoying way to end a spectacular season two, because you're ending it the same way the first Raimi film ended, and you know nothing good's going to come of that. And also, I was uh, terrified watching this last episode because I thought, oh, God, Gwen's going to die. Oh, God, Gwen's going to die. This is why Amazing 2 was such an impactful moment. Gwen didn't die in this, but she's taken from Peter anyway, because Harry pretty much said, guilt trips the shit out of her and says, you know... Dad was sick. A victim of the green. No one knows how that stuff changes you better than I do. Spider-Man should have helped him. Not... Oh. I don't know what I'd do without you, Gwen. You're all that's keeping me from going back on the green myself. Oh. I got your messages... Was there something you wanted to tell me? It was nothing. Another banner episode in the life of Peter Parker. Harry's left with no father. I'm left with no Gwen. At least the city's safe. The Green Goblin's gone forever. Now boarding flight 1057 to Miami. Time to start a brand new adventure. A brand new life. Flight 994 to Grand Cayman Island is now boarding all first-class roads. Sorry for the delay, Mr. Roman. Don't apologize. I never do. 
And Harry throughout the series proves that he is actually a good kid at heart. They, they play it just right so that you can see he's troubled, you can see why he'd have reason to act out and see why he'd have reasons to be, uh, to bury his aggression deep down and to actually possibly be a little bit crazy. But he's played as a worthwhile guy. So Peter has a very difficult um, situation on his hands. He can't now pursue Gwen because she's with Harry. And we'll never know what happened after that. Probably not good things. I think, though, I know what you mean about it being a little bit annoying um, in terms of the way it finishes. Because with that, for me, certainly, you remove some of that uh, shades of grey about Harry's character. Because, frankly, anybody who will do that um, it, it has just sidestepped into the git category for me. <laughs> you don't want to sidestep into the git category. Well, you, you, no, but you know what I mean. It's, it's as you say, you've been kind of understanding where he's... Well, he's, he's being emotionally manipulative. He may not even realise he's doing it, but that's exactly what he's doing. Hmm. Yeah, I, that's that's something that I find very difficult to forgive in people. Yeah. Most of all, though, this, this move annoys me because it takes place in the last half minute of this episode... There's a lot of fighting in the last episode, and then it's just like, right, wrap it up, come on now. And it's like, oh, well, hang on, this is the last episode. How are we going to leave it? Oh, it's gone. And it's it's almost like they didn't know it was going to be their last episode. And I they was just, just going to say, were they aware of the impending cancellation? <sighs> I, I don't know. I don't know how it must be with animation teams. Like, because if you give it a really nice. Uh, closer ending then it's almost like you're asking to be cancelled but if you don't you always leave it sort of with a you know a, a broken off feeling to it I think it might simply be better to risk uh, cancellation by uh, giving every every finale a great like the last episode of season one would have been a great last episode the the penultimate episode of season one would have been a great last episode the uh, one with the, the cat burglar in season two would probably be a, have been a better um, last episode. It leaves the goblin out there, but uh, it's got kind of a it rotates all the way back around to the, the cat burglar scenario, and it kind of it sort of resolves that so that it feels like an ending. I still can't consider it to it to be any uh, a real flaw in the in the series. It's I, I would have liked to. I suppose we're all now given to imagine what might have happened in in three and four and five because they wanted to do like sixty four episodes in the end. They were they were planning for that. They were doing the Marvel thing of plotting it out and going, "This is what we're going to do." But you know, there you go. Two seasons, extremely good seasons at that. Still to this day, my favourite version of Spider-Man, and it's going to take some beating. I can't, I can't imagine. Well, basically, to beat this, we're going to need an MCU Spider-Man. That's what it's going to take, and an MCU Spider-Man handled in a way that makes him very kid-friendly, very kid-accessible. Someone that Lyra can adore, not quite so much on the grim dark, but still extremely well acted. Someone who will uh, interact with the Avengers, specifically Tony Stark, if possible. And um, a Spider-Man that advances beyond just fighting. The, the same formula of the five Spider-Man movies we've seen so far. With the, the slight variations that we've had. One of the things I love so much about season two of this, actually, is that rather than it being really so much about the costume villains, it's about crime bosses in a kid's cartoon. And they're 
it, it, it doesn't feel out of place. And it's, it's quite Shakespearean in the way that it unfolds. And I believe that there, a Spider-Man story uh, in the cinema can actually take that level of more elegant storytelling than just focusing on the trials and tribulations of Peter. Although, it never loses sight of exactly that. It never loses sight of the heart. It never loses sight of the fact that there is this good-hearted kid at the core and you want everything to go right for Peter. And when it doesn't, you're like, oh, come on! And that's, that's an, again, another reason why I love this one. This is the most lovable Peter. He really is, isn't he? Yeah. He's very sweet and slightly hapless, and sometimes you want to give him a good shake. <laughs> but um, His heart's in the right place, his ethics are in the right place. Yeah. The constant inner monologue allows you to, to, to experience exactly what's going through his head and the constant inner conflict where he's like well I can't do this because that and I can't do this because that Arrgh! and yet he never really gets bitter and resentful about it until the uh, the black costume starts preying on that and that's why when the that might be it because he's so cheerful all the time uh, and you know even in the face of uh, uh, you know overwhelming odds when the black costume starts to have an effect it's it's much more insidious and subtle in a way that, uh, say, they had to make it more overt in the um, movies because Peter's been angry before. Also, Peter's been depressed before. Yeah. I mean, basically, when Peter savagely beats the Green Goblin nearly to death at the end of the first Spider-Man, that's black costume stuff right there. That was uh, one of the reasons he got a 12A. I do still really like the Raimi films, even three. Stupid crap, though, it may be far too much of the time. And yet I also still like Amazing 1 and 2. I just don't love any of them like I do Spectacular. I like to think that actually, considering the tone that they struck in these first two seasons, that Gwen actually would have survived. She and Peter could actually have had a future together, possibly. I don't know. It might be kind of romantic to think that, but uh, it's, it just doesn't seem like um, that they would do that in this show. It's nice to think that there's one reality where that tree can actually bear fruit. Mm. Yeah, good point. So on that happy note, let's leave on an extended version of the Spectacular Spider-Man theme, which, if you haven't heard it before today, is probably going to be repeating in your head throughout the week. No apologies. Spider-Man. Spider-Man. It's catchy. And if I ever hear this on a ringtone in a Marvel Spider-Man movie, I will know right there that we finally got the Spider-Man movie I want. The one that references this Spider-Man, not the popsy Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Uh, so, I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural, Neural Handshake, handshake Complete.
Now, one of the crowning achievements of this, although they were standing on the shoulders of something that happened in the Raimi films, how do you follow... name J.J. Abrams J.T. Walsh P.W. Griffith M. Emmett Walsh H.R. Giga J.J. J.J. Taylor J. Arnold Taylor J. Marino Ray J. Johnson How do you follow Michael J. Fox Jim J. Crint How do you follow P.J. and Duncan How do you follow M. Night Shyamalan How do you follow Jim Jack Bookbuster. I'm looking it up. How do you follow M.T. Walsh? How do you follow J.T. Walsh? T.J. Hooker? How do you follow James T. Kirk? How do you follow P.J. Hogan? How do you follow J.K. Simmons? J.K. Simmons. See, I probably could have got there if you hadn't been rattling off everybody with a J in the name. I, you know what I was doing? I was punishing my brain for being stupid. I was oh, going, okay. okay, brain, what do you got for me? Well, I've got a bunch of names with some middle names. Oh, really? Okay. Well, you know, let me let me just show how stupid you are, brain. This is everything he's coming up with right now. That's basically what that was. <laughs> I can't take you anywhere, brain. I'm sorry, master. Don't beat me any further. Wall crawling? Now, now, watch the mouth. There are children present. What? I burned my tongue, okay? Is that a revolving door that prison? What? 